Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 29th of April, the last Wednesday of the month. And uh, you've got Idwin and Rob here on the show. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Ivan. How are you going? I'm going well. Um, it's, I don't know, it, it's the last week of April. It doesn't feel like the last week of April. It doesn't feel like anything anymore. <laughs> to be honest, it feels like March. Who knows at this stage? So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, of course, the, the trees are turning colours as as is the way of autumn. And I learned... The natural world still continues, despite it not mm-hmm. seeming to. And apparently, I learned the other day, depending on how bright uh, the leaves are on the tree, right, indicates how cold the winter will be. So the brighter the colours, obviously sooner, the more intense the winter will be, apparently. So it's kind of like trees kind of go into shock, realising that there's a cold snap coming and kind of start pumping energy and pumping like their last photosynthesis and stuff like that. So... <laughs> Which I mean, like, I don't know if this is, this is the correct kind of interpolation of that, but like, for example, in Canada, which is colder, you do get photos of much more vivid reds and oranges. So I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe, maybe that's why. Hey, absolutely. I mean, this was a, this is a tip I've been passed on by a gardener of a gardener of a gardener. So if any gardeners <laughs> want to actually write into the station and tell us why, or scientists, I should say as well, uh, please feel free to, but you know, this is just something I heard down the grapevine, which I thought was pretty cool. Almost another proxy for climate. Like, the, tr- the red leaf tree index like how how much how many red leaves do we have and that's a proxy for <laughs> the climatic condition of that year and we can measure it over however many years to see a trend probably not a good trend but it could be another proxy another another measurement we could use look why not honestly it'd be a very pretty <laughs> scale and i i could use more of them in my life <laughs> Um, I was, I was thinking about today's show. Now, Rob, you kind of contacted us earlier in the week being like, oh my goodness, this interview is amazing. What have you got planned for us today? Can you kind of break it down? Yeah. So I had a really great interview with Nina Lansbury-Hall, who's a researcher up at the University of Queensland. And so she'll be speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on many Indigenous remote settlements, particularly in Northern Territory and Queensland, as well as thinking, speaking about what are the existing challenges a lot of those communities face and a lot of the sort of ongoing issues since the 80s that have there been attempts to try and address particularly issues like overcrowding and uh, looking at health and hygiene in particular and how housing itself is so important for health and hygiene in ways that like we kind of take for granted most of us but those basic things of having a toilet or having a toilet that works maintaining them is actually a really significant issue in a lot of these communities. So she'll be speaking about that and some of the work that's happening there and hopefully also talking about some of the potential impacts from climate change in that area as well. So it should be quite an interesting discussion, I imagine. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll be following up after that with an interview with um, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party who will be talking about some 
Uh, last last week, the state government actually sat and had discussed a few, couple of different bills responding to COVID-19, et cetera. But um, Patton and a couple of other ministers last week were advocating uh, for the state government to adopt a similar body to like what New Zealand's adopted federally, which is the Epidemic Response Committee. So an oversight or an overseeing body to any actions done with under COVID-19 by the state government. And we'll be talking to Fiona Patton about how successful that was and what our democracy looks like during this time of emergency, because emergency powers, of course, historically not a great word for, um, you know, the abuse of power and all that sort of stuff. So it'll be interesting to catch up with her. And then we should be finishing off the show with some like some last few bits of audio from activism at the margins conference. So I've still got a couple of fantastic speeches uh, and yeah, we'll be probably finishing off, capping off the show with that, which is always a treat. We've got brown books as well as, as per usual every week. So you're right. We, we have a trans thoughts, fantastic stuff. Um, so we'll probably get onto that, but first up, we're going to jump into some alternative news and yeah, we'll be back in just a moment. Some folks know about it. Some don't. Some will Sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty Now, one, two, nitty-gritty Now, yeah, boom, nitty-gritty Hoo-wee Right down to the real nitty-gritty And you're listening to 3CR. We're going to jump into alternative news now. I'm sorry, this week's alternative news is kind of like mainstream news, uh, but it gives us something alternative to the coronavirus. So I still think it's very important. So this week, Environment Minister Susan Lay has announced that the government may change Australia's national environment laws before a review is finished later this year. So this is kind of coming out of the fires and the crises that we've been going through. This is quite significant because Susan Lay has said that basically bills and new environmental policy options will be coming out of the draft recommendations of this final report, which will come out midway through the year. So the final report comes out at the end of it. 
and these draft recommendations will come out halfway through. Um, and they've signaled they're going to try and push through some legislative rather than wait for the full report in an effort to get business going again post-COVID-19. Sounds great, but a lot of people think this is code for removing environmental protections and uh, potentially introducing weaker, watered-down versions of these policies that would have then come out of, you know, a full report, um, especially seeing as the, the rhetoric around jobs and, you know, them saying, oh, we're going to do this to jumpstart jobs and get jobs back on the go. A lot of people are calling this out and saying it sounds more like, again, the coalition is trying to usher in half-baked pol- um, environmental policy. And, of course, Australia does need... Australian environmental organisations have come back on during this story to stress the need for tougher environmental protections after we've seen uh, our recent fire crises or the summer that we just had, as well as Australia's high extinction rate. So there's been greater focus on this issue and greater call to like wait till the final report is done rather than push out these policies. I think it's also kind of interesting, I think, on that same point, how... There's like in Victoria, there's a, there's a, a sort of a flagging. There's going to be a, they're going to try and push a construction boom at the once restrictions are lifted, which is in a sense great because around one in ten people are employed in construction. Mm. But people are also mentioning just making sure that that doesn't mean that there's a watering down of a lot of the planning approvals mm. because I, obviously they do want to jumpstart things and get things going quicker, but ensuring that many of the good principles that are instilled in urban planning laws don't get glossed over. Because the last thing that we want is a city where we don't have good urban form, we don't have design that actually considers various aspects that have been sort of put in over many, many years. So that's just something to flag as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And my next story kind of, I don't know, feeds off kind of these recommendations to come out of the community and voices. Uh, This one is regarding bushfire survivors who have launched this week a legal action to try and force the New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority to to develop a more assertive climate change policy. The Environmental Defenders Office will be acting on behalf of these bush survivor survivors um, and will argue that the EPA has a duty to protect New South Wales communities by regulating greenhouse gas emissions to a levels consistent with a safe climate. And this is, again, quite significant because um, Bush Survivors for Climate Action, the group, have come together to basically argue that uh, it is negligence on the part of the EPA to have not instilled a more, like, a climate change plan. Um, and I, I don't know, this, this had me harking back to last year when Friends of the Earth um, kind of took a legal case to The Hague uh, to hold Shell, the massive, you know, transnational corporation account. Uh, we're starting to see more of these legal legal cases being heard, and it'll be interesting to see if any precedents or common law come out of it, you know, establishing kind of this idea for greater legal protections and rights, legal rights to climate safety and all that sort of stuff. So that was another kind of environmental story that I thought of int- was of interest. The last one, uh, Rob, does actually link back to Victoria. So... Uh, this links back to analysis by the Australian Institute, which shows that Victorian's government's key report used to approve onshore gas mining appears to have underestimated the greenhouse gas emissions from new sites up to by about 88%. So this is, of course, relevant as the state government quietly has lifted its ban on conventional onshore gas exploration. And the Victorian Gas Program Progress Report does not really count for uh, emissions from the ultimate combustion of the gas, emissions from methane leakage, or the life cycle emissions from gas processing. So obviously these are massive components that haven't really been accounted for within the main progress report and the main environmental considerations and uh, is of great concern because it it kind of portrays this lifting of the ban as something that might be safe for Victoria, whereas it will most definitely have huge climate impacts. 
it's also rather awkward because the gas project progress report also reveals only very small benefits for the state in regards to the amount of jobs that it's it's advertised. So the government's claimed um, 6,400 new jobs as part of this new, you know, gas project. However, looking into the actual report into it, it seems as if, if only as few as like 57 jobs, at most 204 jobs will actually be available. So there's been some massive underestimating both environmentally and job-wise, uh, which kind of makes it look like a bit of a dodgy deal. So that will be something we follow into. And finally, this is finishing capping off alternative news. It's not really alt news, but maybe some chance for advocacy. I know we've been pushed all onto the digital line, so you may be missing you know, your community meetups. But Rio Tinto, the mining giant, will be hosting an online Australian sharehold meeting on the 7th of May. An environmental group, 350.org, have highlighted that this allows for all Australians to get on and share their thoughts about potentially, you know, Rio Tinto operations and what you might think of international mining. Uh, so that's more information is at their site, uh, whether you want to share your concerns about, you know, greenwashing environmental disasters, illegal worker or human rights abuses, or even the corporate donations up the wazoo that Rio Tinto is all guilty of. Um, it, it, yeah, it offers opportunity to actually get your voices heard. So that might be something that you might be interested in getting involved in. And again, we'll put a link to that in our rundown. But that kind of caps off my alternative news. A lot of a lot of environmental stuff this week, Rob. <laughs> a lot of, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see, and we'll be talking about this later with Fiona Patton, but it's interesting to see what's going on uh, parallel to the crisis, but maybe isn't getting the same coverage or reportage. Mm-hmm. Uh, as usual, but still the fact that it, it, it's nice to know that people are still ticking away with these, you know, these legal actions or these, these points of advocacy. So that's good to, to see. Um, and I suppose we'll now kick into a song and then start off with your interview, Rob. Yes.
skin ain't light and my body ain't tight. I will never be what you want and that's alright. my skin ain't light and that's alright. Tell me who Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have an interview looking at the impact that COVID-19 is having on the health of remote Indigenous Australian communities. And so to help us understand the situation, we have Dr Nina Lansbury-Hall. Nina is a researcher on environmental health within the University of Queensland School of Public Health. She specialises in the intersection of water and energy management with social, environmental and economic considerations. Currently, she's examining the challenges and opportunities of implementing the UN Sustainable Development Goals, including the provision of water, sanitation and hygiene in remote Indigenous communities. Nina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. 
So when we talk about Indigenous Australian housing, we often use this term health hardware. So what does this term mean? Health hardware is the infrastructure that we all have in our homes that allows us to be healthy. So it's about hot water for a hot shower. It's about a working washing machine. Um, it's about a fridge that functions well to keep your medicines and your food safe. Um, it's about a toilet that flushes. It's about a regular waste removal from your home. It's all those little bits and pieces that if you didn't have them, it didn't have that infrastructure, you actually would find it very difficult to keep healthy. And I think it's very important when we talk about lots of people's lives is to understand what's the structure in which they live. And, and there's a real tendency sometimes that we point our finger and look at people's behaviours and say, well, you need to shower more often or you need to keep that medicine in the fridge without understanding that actually there's a lot of people for whom that is really difficult because the health hardware the healthy infrastructure doesn't exist for them or doesn't function in the way that it should. Mm. So in a sense, it's kind of this, it's this thing that we often take for granted, the invisible hardware that exists around us, yet actually that is kind of underpinning many of the health issues that these Indigenous communities are facing. That's right. And it was a, a, a term coined in the 1980s by a group called Health Habitat, which is an Australian group uh, that really understood if you want to improve people's health, you actually have to ensure that the environment in which they live is healthy. So that's about clean water and, and clean air, but it's also about a functional house and all those health hardware dimensions of a functional house. So also in addition to a house's physical infrastructure, which does strongly influence health and hygiene outcomes, as you mentioned, how also does housing maintenance play into this as well? I think any, any of us who've had a, a block toilet for even an hour in our home know exactly how, how our health is going to be if that health hardware doesn't function. Now we can think about all the different dimensions that keep us healthy and think about when, when a house doesn't support that. So if you don't have screens on your windows for mosquitoes, uh, that's a health risk. If you don't have a flushing toilet, well, where do you go? For, to the toilet and if you start needing to use open defecation, which is the terminology for toileting, you know, outside, uh, that's soon going to be an issue, a health issue as well. The research I do is, is predominantly focused on remote Indigenous communities and I look at a range of hygiene-related infections. So uh, skin infections are, they're very preventable, if you're, if, you're, if you're a physician, you'd say they are preventable infections, which they are, except you need both um, knowledge as well as infrastructure in order to prevent them. Um, and that can be health hardware, including soap, hot water and a clean towel. And not everybody has access to those three things. And so school sores, which those of us who are parents will, will have all probably had an issue in our home, they're really hard to get rid of just to kind of really source them out. If you don't have a working washing machine that has hot water and you can't clean the sheets and the towels just for that, that child who's getting repeated skin infections. And the tragedy of anyone who gets repeated skin infections is that they start off as acute infections, they become chronic and they can actually lead to very serious life-threatening illnesses that affect the heart, like um, rheumatic heart disease, or that affect the kidneys, such as APSGN, um, which is a type of kidney disease. And these can ultimately 
kill people and if they don't kill them, they can have a really tough life managing their health. I imagine many of these issues are also compounded by isolation, particularly access to services or access to those basic kind of health hardware elements, as you say. But another thing as well is that there's a higher prevalence of infection in remote Indigenous communities due to overcrowding. And this is more common inside more remote communities than in urban areas. At first glance, this would seem counterintuitive. So why is this the case? Yeah, I'm glad you bring up crowding because it's an it's something that many of us sitting here in the city, if that's why we're listening to this interview, don't often consider. And when we come face to face with the reality of, of some of the crowding crowded situations that, that people live in on a day-to-day basis, it's it's almost incomprehensible. The Australian Bureau of Statistics in its census always asks how many people live in a home. But sometimes the answers that people give are moderated by a concern that maybe they will, if they're in social housing or or private rental, they might have a lease that says a certain number of people can live in their home and they'll only ever give that number. Mm. Um, But the reality might be much higher. And so we found in the Barclay region, which is 500 kilometres north of Alice Springs, uh, some people, it wasn't uncommon to have 12 to 15 people in a three-bedroom home with one bathroom. We did have some that were up to 22 people in a three-bedroom home. And there's a whole range of reasons for this. One is that there was a lot of housing built in the 1980s and it was housing. It wasn't amazing housing. It wasn't really high-quality housing to live to be placed long-term in extreme environments. So it's housing that that hasn't really stood the test of time, but it's still home to many people. And there really hasn't been much housing since. So in the Barclay region, we spoke to the organisation that formerly provided Indigenous housing to both people living in the outskirts of the town and in the remote communities in the region. They hadn't seen a new house built in 12 years. And yet all these communities and what's called town camps or community living areas, which are social housing areas around main towns, the populations are growing there and they're growing for two reasons. One is because people are moving back to live on country. On country mean is an Aboriginal English term for traditional land. So people are aware, like in the in parts of Barclay, they are Watamunga people and they're moving back to Watamunga land and all the stories and the heritage and the familiarity and the knowledge of that land is is a really important, powerful thing. But when you move back to a community on that land, there's not necessarily going to be a new house built. So so the communities are growing by a by return to, to country. And also uh, the population, uh, Indi- Australia's Indigenous population is growing at a higher rate than the general population. It's a higher birth rate. A lot of young women become mothers a bit earlier than, than the general population. So it's a growing it's a growing population and there, a lot of people are choosing to move back to country. But the housing stock is not growing a- anywhere near the same pace. And the result is people move into other families' home to where their extended family might live. And so uh, in one of my surveys, we asked people, how many people live in your house? And then we would go through each bedroom. Who lives in bedroom one, bedroom two, bedroom three? Who sleeps in the lounge room, the kitchen, balcony, the yard? And in one home we found uh, there were eight people sleeping in the yard in a windbreak and they had been there for a year and one of them was on kidney dialysis. And that was the reason why they were in town, in a, in a town camp, because 
to access dialysis, you need to be in a town near a clinic and you need to go three three times a week approximately. So you can't live on a remote community that's 300 kilometres away. You need to live in town and you pretty much need to live there long term. But you often don't want to go solo, especially because this is quite a long-term move. So a lot of people, family is very important and uh, and you move with your family. And if there's not a house available, then you you become a visitor, a, a long-term visitor. And, uh, and that's how it's not uncommon to have such as this eight people living in, in a windbreak in your yard for a year. You touched on an interesting point, which is how during the 80s there was this initial growth of housing and provision of a housing stock. Yet sort of since then, we've seen sort of various statements and agreements, such as the National Indigenous Reform Agreement, that are consistently advocating for housing that facilitate good hygiene habits. Yet despite a lot of these continued declarations, we've continued to see significant shortfalls and investment in this area. So why is that the case? Wow. Well, I'm aware this is a radio interview, Rob, rather than, you know, <laughs> non-stop talking. <laughs> but there's a lot of dimensions going on. One is the short political cycle and Indigenous affairs uh, is, a, is a federal portfolio. So each time the party changes, so too do the policies. So you might have a very good initiative uh, and you don't see the full life of it because the party changes and the politics changes. You've also got insufficient investment. So while a policy might look good, it's not necessarily as much as needs to be done. And things are at a really crisis point in terms of the size of the population and the level of crowding and all those health impacts that, and, and mental health impacts that come when people live in a crowded circumstance. So there was a 2017 review of remote housing for Indigenous people. Uh, there's a figure there saying five and a half thousand new houses are required by 2028 to to fix this shortfall. There's a lot of questions we've heard from, from people around that process that didn't make it to the publication, just saying that number is so small compared to what is required. Right. So even though 5,500 houses sounds like a large amount, and when you think about building a house in a remote area, it's just so expensive right. because trying to get people out there who can build and um and, and materials out there and then to maintain them and, and provide essential services with, with water and energy, et cetera. Uh, that, that number is apparently just much smaller than it is needed. And then we've got other politics. I mean, politics is right through Indigenous housing issues. Um, in the Barclay region where our research is focused, there were um, local Indigenous-led Indigenous community housing organisations and they were providing and, and maintaining and building new houses for, for both remote communities and town camps. Now, a lot of your listeners will remember the Northern Territory intervention when the federal government came in after the Little Children of Sacred Report and there were a range of really significant and sudden changes that happened. And one was to remove housing from Indigenous uh, leadership and to put it back into a federal and territory-led management. And that just creates many more layers of housing. It creates a real whitefella interface. We don't have Indigenous decision-making and Indigenous voices heard. So even if houses are being built, they're not necessarily the right houses for people's needs, um, and they're not necessarily funded to the level that they need to be. 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and if you're just joining us, we're listening to Dr. Nina Lansbury-Hall, who's speaking to us about the impact of COVID-19 within many of Australia's remote Indigenous communities. I imagine over this, this time since the 80s, when these first houses and investments were being made, that a lot has been learned about what is culturally appropriate and what works and improving health outcomes. And I guess this starts all the way from uh, Health Habitat's work with Paul Faleros. From your understanding, how have the methods and approaches to improve health outcomes shifted over that time period? And how are these learnings being integrated? Or perhaps is it being lost over time? Look, that's, I would love to give you a really positive answer about learning and improvement and culturally appropriate design. I think we have a lot of great examples we can see if we reflect on that period, such as the models of Indigenous-led housing organisations, but we've also seen the loss of those, so we don't have this, this story that continues going forward positively. Yes, there are designs that are culturally appropriate, and some some families do want to live in an extended family setting, but they don't want to live with five people sleeping in the lounge room every night. They, so there are ways, of course, there are designs of housing that could accommodate more people but provide health hardware, uh, such as extra bathrooms and separate cooking areas to make it both gender appropriate, which has cultural dimensions, um, and, and even just, you know, people traffic through a home and safety issues. A lot of people spoke to us unprompted about uh, the, the stress of living in a crowded home, but also safety issues. Um, when you have a lot of people in your home and you're raising your children there, you don't always know everybody that well who's in your home. So there, there can be safety issues as well. So there's lovely initiatives that are, can be traced over the years of housing design, but sometimes it just comes down to money. and uh, Professor Paul Mehmet, who is um, a, a long-term name in the Indigenous housing world and a key part of our research project in the Barclay region, uh, he's been designing uh, homes for remote communities for decades. And he, he talks of fantastic designs with really, really acknowledging a lot of people like to sit outside um, and have shading, so shaded balconies and eaves on windows to keep kind of for, for natural ventilation and, and cooling of the home in a natural way. But when it comes down to a budget, bits are cut off the house before they're built in order to make them affordable from, from the federal budget or the, the territory budget that's paying for them. So you end up with kind of the core of the house being built rather than all those extra dimensions that would make it really livable and much more culturally appropriate and people could have outdoor living in a, in a cool circumstance. And it really is those those smaller details that actually collectively add up to something much more significant in terms of how the house is used. I guess moving more thinking forwards about sort of future challenges, I guess on top of the existing challenges that are already there, you're also currently involved with an IPCC working group looking at the impacts of climate change on human health. And so from your understanding, how will climate change impact remote Indigenous Australian households in particular? And maybe how can we best mitigate some of these impacts that may occur? Again, you ask a great question with such a long answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so firstly, climate change is a reality. Our, our, our climate is changing through human contributions in terms of carbon emissions. 
Australia is already experiencing a range of changes. And the Torres Strait Islands, which is where another site of my research is, uh, it's such an amazing region with, uh, I think there's 16 inhabited islands and, and people who are really connected to their land and, and their language and their history. And, and these islands are already facing cyclones each year that are, that are more frequent and more intense. Sea level rises that are overwhelming the sea walls that have been built before. And when you get sea level rise and flooding, you get an overflow sometimes of sewage um, because everything's very close to sea level. And so then you get risk of infectious diseases such as diarrheal diseases. You've got changing seasons where, where you've got mosquito-borne diseases that are potentially expanding their habitat. So places where you wouldn't get a, a, a mosquito-borne disease such as malaria or dengue before, uh, you know, the, the risk profile is changing. And then on mainland Australia, when we think about well, coastal regions with rising sea level and more, more intense king tides, you've got erosion of, of the coastline. You've also got, both in the Torres Strait and on the mainland, um, where there's graveyard sites that are coastal and some really disturbing stories about ancestors who, whose bones are, are being revealed and, and the um, graves being washed away into sea, which has, it's, you know, it's, it's traumatic as well as destructive. And then for people living more inland, like I said, housing needs to be housing and, and other infrastructure for energy and water, essential services needs to be really robust because these are extreme climates anywhere. It's dusty and it's hot. And when wet season comes, if you're in the north, then it's, it's quite extreme amounts of rainfall. Um, and yet this housing is not anything special. And the, the projections of, of increases in heat and rainfall and, and extreme weather events are, are only going to stress this housing more. So, and then we've got water security about where do people source their water and will those water sources remain um, as, as it becomes hotter and there's more evaporation from surface water such as rivers and, and dams and lakes. So there's a whole range of issues and Indigenous Australians who live in remote areas already are challenged by quite, they're really living on the extreme. They are often not financially wealthy. There's, there's very little employment in remote areas, so they don't have savings necessarily uh, or the ability to move or the ability to adjust their housing to be more comfortable. Um, and a lot of people live with existing health issues, a lot of di very high rates of diabetes and kidney disease. And that makes people very vulnerable. So in, we're in COVID-19 pandemic as we speak, and we talk about those who are most vulnerable. Uh, one group of those are people who already are living with chronic diseases that just make them that much weaker to withstand new infections. So it is, it's a pretty concerning situation. I see it, the only way I can see it positively is that it's a compelling set of reasons to to take serious action on climate change and not not play around imagining that that maybe climate change is not real or um or it's questioned it's actually it's happening now people are living with the changes and there's a lot of reason to to bring in really strong policies and rethink how we can how we can live sustainably in a in a changing climate absolutely and thank you so much for 
showing us the impacts that climate change is actually having right now, as well as what it will be into the future. Before finishing up, I want to ask for people who are listening, who want to become involved or volunteer or donate towards these issues or get involved, how can they do so or where should they look? Look, I think there's, there's a few ways we can be better citizens together. There is the financial dimension and there's a lot of fantastic organized, non-government organisations that, that care for Indigenous health issues and Indigenous literacy uh, and essential services. There is a question, though, while, while that is really important because those areas are underfunded, uh, we should be asking bigger political questions about why aren't they sufficiently funded when we're in Australia in 2020. We're wealthy, we're lucky. Uh, these are the original Australian citizens. Uh, why, are, why are services to where they live not being sufficiently funded? And asking quite serious questions of uh, the government agencies that, that are responsible for them. So also education of ourselves and some reflection of those of us who are non-Indigenous like myself, actually starting to understand about Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the heritage and the history and having some humility that we are on Indigenous land. It's an honour to be on this land and a lot of Indigenous people that I work with really describe what a racist society they encounter as, as they go through life. Um, and that's our responsibility as non-Indigenous people to, um, to really reconsider how we consider ourselves as Australians and how inclusive we are. Absolutely. I think you touched on points that could be a whole other interview in itself. Uh, but thank you so much, Nina, for sharing all your research and sharing with us what we really should be focusing on more as, as a nation. You're welcome, Rob. That was Dr. Nina Lansbury-Hall speaking to us about the impact of COVID-19 on many remote Indigenous communities, as well as exploring many of the underlying health issues that these communities have been facing for many decades. Nina is a researcher on environmental health within the University of Queensland School of Public Health. Life just gives me lemons. And I don't like lemonade Sticky situation Look at this mess I've made
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and now it's time for Tram Thoughts. So I was having a think and I would say to many of our listeners we would argue that the very presence of humans is really what's actually detrimental to the world's ecological trajectory. It's our physical presence and in many places of the world it's this presence combined with our current obsession to use the natural world dispose of our waste in a non-circular manner that is undeniably damaging and exhausting the carrying capacity of our ecological systems. And if you're interested in reading more into that, there's a really great book called Collapse by Jared Diamond, who goes through many, many centuries of human societies and it illustrates how they collapse. And it's a scarily similar path to how things are progressing today. But sort of putting that to the side, it's, it's, we, we consume more than what our natural systems can provide. We travel in reckless ways. We're 
and this only really has become more obvious recently since the lockdowns and since COVID-19, but we kind of live in ways that are not really compatible with natural systems. And so since the lockdowns have begun, we've really started to see nature start to reclaim what has been for centuries a purely human domain, that being our urban realm, our cities, our places that we live. And so we've seen stories of kangaroos bouncing down the CBDs, which seems ridiculous, but there, there is a lot of CCTV footage of that. And we've seen raccoons within the grid of New York City. And it's almost like we're starting to see this period of nature kind of reclaiming land from what, from what which we took from them originally. And it's kind of like this moment of natural vengeance. And I, I find this kind of interesting because like we as humans, I would argue, have also been benefiting from this moment. So speaking with friends and family, they're talking about the clearer skies and the cleaner air and the quieter environment. And rather strangely out of all of this, a, a real sense of calm. And uh, something I was interested to hear about your thoughts on, Iwin, is given this moment, it's kind of been forced upon us. Do you think that now that we've experienced and seen how nature does slowly claw its way back and actually having a bit of quiet and sort of a toned down version of our living, that we actually might start to want to pursue cities that enable this kind of simpler appreciation of natural beauty that exists? Or will it all just go back to what it was? Oh, my romantic heart says that we <laughs> want to build new cities and live better with what the green. <laughs> yeah. Um, my cynical, my cynical side says, I reckon everyone's looking forward to getting back on the roads and moving around and doing that trip to Europe and all that sort of stuff. And I can't, I can't necessarily blame people. I mean, not everyone's in a great, great situation. Not everyone's being able to appreciate, you know, the, the quiet or the lack of pollution. So some people will be eager to get back to norm, get back to a certain normal. However, yeah. I do agree with you. I do think there's a lot of merit in the fact that a lot of people have been waking up to some of this, the, the pleasures of getting to spend more time, maybe not necessarily at home, but uh, more time in, even in things like not commuting, you know, mm. uh, or having that lack of noise or, or having that excuse to do things that maybe you've been putting off for a long time. And I've, I've been finding that, that that's generated i do think coming out of this we will shape certain behaviors that weren't present in our society before and i hope they will be around things like as you said more consciousness towards the green more consciousness towards shaping our systems around that um but it's a hope it's a hope at the moment so i'm 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 like nervous (laughs) but um (laughs) but i definitely agree what we're seeing like just the, the 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 um the shots of like different cities and the the fact that you can see in these cities where you you yeah. usually couldn't because of the amount of fog and smoke and pollution that in of itself i think people have woken up to and realized hey we might be going somewhere wrong if you we can't see our own monuments <laughs> um it's and i hope like- yeah i hope spiraling out of that there's there's like um a continuation of that that sort of almost endearance to like or, or remembering of before we we became complicit or we swapped out these sorts of you know clean air quietness for what we thought might, might be better technology blah 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 or you know just slowly eroded i suppose anyway 
those are my thoughts. <laughs> it's kind of like to draw it one way. We're sort of, it, it's seeing a great appreciation for things that we didn't actually know could exist. And I guess a, a kind of a crude analogy I bring to is it's kind of like when you stop having sugar in your diet, everything tastes bland. And then after a while you start to taste the natural flavors and a lot of non-sugary foods. And I feel like it's kind of the same with this. Like at the start, it's everything seems bland because our current lives have been stripped away from sort of everything that we're used to. And then after a while, you do start to see some things that you missed or didn't ever really pick up before, like the sounds and like the clear skies. And not to romanticize it because there are bits that aren't so nice, but it is kind of interesting what we then start to may perhaps appreciate more realizing that we don't actually have that and could have that more regularly in our daily life, which kind of brings me to my next point of, I mean, I have some thoughts on this, but I'm interested to hear your ideas of, is it possible to build living environments that can now can just allow nature to simply exist, just giving it an intrinsic value in the way that we're seeing kind of, more animals and more fauna and flora sort of slowly taking over the city. Could you foresee that as a city or an environment that we live in? Or would you want to live in that kind of environment? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, cannot remember which city overseas is doing it, but one of, uh, it's Milan, Milan, so city, uh, has just committed to increasing bicycles and because it's, it's seen a dramatic drop in pollution has gone hell yeah let's capitalize on this and try and use this crisis this turning point to transition to maybe greener solutions and i mean i can see that everything from the city down to the individual home um this might be taking a bit weirdly personal but next door our neighbors are rebuilding their house and one of the biggest solutions they've come up with and they've been always very environmentally conscious conscientious is um smaller house you know ethical environmental materials and products and building but more room for trees more room for garden more room for you know plants that are considerate to the wildlife and native to the area and again i can see that scoping from the individual uh, especially during this crisis we're getting a greater chance to maybe appreciate our backyards if you do have a backyard or getting you know to appreciate our plant children if you have plant children um and i see that spiraling out and i i hope I hope into our cities because I would, I'd love to see our cities reclaimed a bit by greenery. I know, I do know that um, a while ago, the state government was proposing to have more greenery in the city and increase the greenery in the city and all for it. Like, absolutely. Um, let's, let's see if we can create a system which works so much more in, in harmony with the land rather than constantly exploiting it and expending it and destroying it in such a, um, Oh, just concrete jungle way. So yes, I, I do hold out hope. I would love that alternative. And I do think, I do think it's possible on different levels. And I do think that we might move potentially if we could. <laughs> I think going back to your point about your neighbor, mm. I think you kind of raise a point that Australians aren't good as recognizing is that actually a bigger house is not desirable. I mean, a bigger house, a bigger, like having a lot of land with a small house and lots of greenery is actually more affordable. It's, as you mentioned, a smaller impact on the environment, in some ways more livable because you actually have more greenery and it actually reduces your energy bill as well because you've got less area that you're heating and cooling and so on and so forth. And assuming that the space is well-designed and planned, it can produce as good, if not better quality of life through a more efficient use of design. Um, but yeah, kind of 
I mean, personally, I strongly favor obviously a city that is gender on the environment. And there's some really great sort of ideas that are being floated of creating almost walls, which are kind of like a bark that enable bugs to kind of crawl up the walls and sort of burrow in, in a way that they can't get into a, into a house, or maybe it's just like a fence or something like that. But it enables, you're giving sort of an infrastructure that we use, but also an infrastructure that nature can use which is kind of interesting um so i would really strongly favor a city that's obviously gentler on the environment yeah i wouldn't sorry just jumping in and I, I know i did mention him before this uh bruno latour i've just been finishing bruno latour and he i won't jump into him because he is a crazy french philosopher with a lot of different ideas but he renames the earth the terrestrial and us the terrestrials and it it was like a question that was posed that should be posed to everyone, I believe, which is like, what do you depend on to subsist? What depends on you to subsist? And the whole point is he's making the fact that we are inherently embedded in our nature. We are the climate crisis. We are, you know, all of these different ecosystems. And I know this is nothing new to 3CR, but it's like, if we go into our housing, if we go into our planning permits, if we go into our cities, and I mean, the, the, the idea you just mentioned there, Rob, was just is so cool with that idea of trying to coexist with our natural world. Like, ah, oh, that, that's a very cool utopia in my books or a very cool alternative in my books, I should say. Absolutely. But it's interesting. So there's it, it, in some parts, this utopia of where we allow nature to kind of crawl back over in some ways is at odds to our social needs into some degrees, depending how it's played out. So for example, at the moment, we're seeing nature roll out in our current form of our urban cities, yet people are more socially isolated. So there's kind of this little bit of a tension between the two, which could be met through measures, like we said, of the bark wall or so on and so forth, but let's sort of exist in the, the current world. Um, it's kind of interesting because as much as COVID-19 has revealed about how much nature can slowly start to reclaim our urban domains, it really has emphasized our need for urban space and our need to live out our social human needs. And like, for me, I'm kind of craving I know, a commute just to pass through space and sort of separate work and rest. And even though I'm observing the same view every day and sort of reflecting on it, I'm seeing a familiar environment with slightly different eyes every day as I kind of reflect and evolve. Um, and at the moment, I guess the, the sort of de facto way of communicating is video conferencing. And it can't quite replace the subtleties of actually being in an environment with people. There's been studies done about how a whole day of video conferencing is exhausting, unlike a whole day of socializing for various reasons. But it kind of got me thinking, and I'm not certainly advocating for this position, but I think it's an interesting thought kind of proposition, is that is there a, an alternate way of living that kind of satisfies these perhaps two competing demands this ability to allow nature to thrive in our urban environments by us not being there whilst also fulfilling our social needs and so it kind of made me reflect of this idea of maybe we're living in worlds that don't physically exist but are so compelling that we believe that we do they do so this is essentially virtual reality environments so to extend this idea further, and I can't believe I've gone from natural environments to VR, but anyway, here we go. Uh, to extend this idea Roller further, coaster. <laughs> inside my brain, um, a VR, it could be a place where, you know, through your digital avatar, we could hypothetically attend work. We could participate in a virtual tutorial at university. We could undertake a virtual GP checkup. We could undertake even a virtual commute to our virtual workplaces. I mean, this is kind of you creating a digital world, essentially. And actually, there's a lot of work into this already. Facebook is 
investing and looking into creating digital avatars so you hang out in VR, which is it's a really interesting video to watch. But in doing all of this, we're essentially living our lives as we are now in our homes, separate from the cities, which are starting to be overgrown by nature over many, 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 many years. Yet digitally, we're more convinced that we're actually not in our homes. And I guess I want to ask, would you actually want to live in this reality? Or could you see it as a viable reality? Mm. That's, a, that's a doozy. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very privileged in the, the house I live in because during this crisis, I mean, we've talked about it in the aforementioned conversation, but um, I, I'm actually liking it a lot more than my usual routine. I have a lot more time and calmness than I do in my usual routine just because it's not filled with over, a stimulus, you know, nine, yeah. nine to five stimulus. That being said, I couldn't do virtual reality, I think, or I couldn't do this move to digital and just subsist in my home. I think... I think there is something to be said for going out to other people's houses and seeing them or catching up in different spaces like parks. Like what would we do with parks? You know, would we be able to, how would we be able to access? What spaces would we be able to access? Um, and VR just makes me, I don't know, slightly seasick. <laughs> in its current form. Yes. In its current issue. form. Yes. In, in, there's an issue. Uh, but yeah, there is some interesting points about equity, though, because arguably, say Absolutely. you're living in a rural area, to be able to attend a GP when you don't need physical tests, but you need to speak to someone and it's more compelling in a sort of digital environment through VR than just a video screen, it could actually meet a lot of uh, challenges that we currently face in society. So by long true. distance or ability true, true. to move. Or say, for example, you didn't want to travel two hours every day to get to university. So you attend a digital tutorial. I mean, I mean, to, to sort of counter your point before about a park, I mean, hypothetically, hypothetically, we could pretend that the virtual parks become so realistic that we don't even know if we're not in a real park, but then it could be better because then that park itself is just letting thrive naturally. It's not being manicured in the way that we manicure parks. Look, it's a bit too <laughs> wally for me. It's a bit too wally for me. I, I see the um I see the interest, but I just think uh there's 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 tricking your brain into thinking you're in it and then there's being in it. Like I, I don't think I could compromise and this that might be an inherent selfishness of me and you know that humanistic philosophy of you know humans are the center of the world which i think we definitely need to challenge so i agree with that but i don't think i could lose the ability to connect with certain spaces that i do connect with or i want i think though what it does especially this crisis questions of vr and all that sort of stuff is it makes us a lot more conscious of what we prioritize and what we'd make space for after the crisis and like so for example do i think it's okay to drive up and see my friend in you know bendigo every two weeks and burn that fuel well maybe i reconsider that and i reevaluate that and i think hmm you know maybe just a phone call or a video conference might actually do yeah. then again i don't think i could ever remove myself from the possibility of doing that with yeah yeah with the, the kind of idea of hooking in I, I don't think i could chip in i'm gonna by the way play chipping in after this <laughs> a very cyberpunk song it'll make my partner very happy but um this is what it's reminding me of <laughs> yeah no thank you for sharing the thoughts i mean i i don't know either way i can see the appeal because it could be one of these things of perhaps is what actually needs to be done for humans to protect mm. or for, for, the, for the environment, for the sake of the environment, perhaps is what needs to be done. And I hope not because that shows the desperation of the situation, but 
it is a potential solution. You're right. You're, you are a hundred percent right. And I mean, it'd, it'd be like, the, what's the environmental cost of having this? What's the accessibility? What's the equity of having that sort of, you know, technology as with any technology. Uh, but I think, I think what our summer season showed us, what, the fact that, you know, climate trajectory that we're on suggests that we're going to be experiencing up to what, I think it was four to six crises at any one time in our major cities in, you know, the coming years. The fact yeah. that we have been forced inside by coronavirus and, uh, you know, given some time to reevaluate, we're definitely going to have to challenge our norm and seek some better alternative. I I, I agree. The deterrence to be our world, the deterrence to, to mm. not live in our world is to do good climate change. I Absolutely. like that as a... You know what? I think that- Advertising <laughs> campaign 101. <laughs> do good environmental stuff. Well. <laughs> no. So get on the environment. <laughs> there I we think, go. I We've solved it. Done. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Ivan, for joining me on my tram and my tram thoughts today. Ding, ding. No problem. All right. We'll be, um, as I said, hooking into a song and then finishing with an interview with Fiona Patton uh, regarding the current state of parliament. Woohoo! It's kind of icky The depths that you go To bring a good girl To bring a good girl down just cause you're icky Don't mean that you're down To bring a good girl To bring a good girl down It's kind of icky How you pick a side That only suits you That only suits you at the time Just for a
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. So last week, Fiona Patton, alongside other members in state parliament, are called for an insurance that the Victorian parliament has proper oversight of decisions during the COVID-19 crisis. Last Thursday, the parliament met to discuss. Uh, we have Fiona on today to tell us kind of what resulted. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. So you went in last Thursday with the intent to establish kind of a joint committee or a call to establish a joint committee to oversee state government actions during the crisis. Um, would this be a body such as the Epidemic Response Committee that we've seen on a federal level in New Zealand? What would it have looked like or what, what was your intention? It, it look, there, there are lots of different examples of oversight and scrutiny groups around well, around the world. And, and the New Zealand committee is a very good example of that, that it's a, not a government committee, that it's chaired by someone who's not from the government. And that was certainly what we requested from the government was the establishment of a non-government committee to provide some of that scrutiny and oversight. We weren't successful in getting that vote up Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately. However, what was also probably of greater concern was the fact that Parliament had no um, return date. So not only were we giving the government these extraordinary emergency powers, but we weren't actually able to do any scrutiny, which is generally what happens in Parliament. So the compromise position, I suppose, from government was that they have set return dates for Parliament. Uh, We'll be returning at the latest on the 2nd of June, hopefully earlier, hopefully in the last weeks of May. Uh, They have left the door open for some form of, um, I guess, review rather than uh, current scrutiny. So it would be looking from a review perspective as did they do the right thing? Mm -hmm. How did they handle that? From my perspective, it will also be my desire to find out what we learned from this. And, you know, for many of us, we've kind of learned to do things differently in ways that we would never like to do it the way we used to. So there is, I think there might be some positives that come out of this. Gotcha. And just touching back on kind of, you know, the the fact that you weren't able to establish an oversight committee, what do you think the significance is of this? Can you explain the significance of giving a state emergency powers and what that can mean because obviously especially during COVID-19 and the pandemic we're seeing state have a huge amount of power over public health policy and in some ways a lot more effect than maybe federal governments having in you know people's minds right now in living in Victoria. That's that's right and I think you know we we only have to look at sort of I suppose some of those civil liberties that we give up uh, being able to 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 go outside freely Mm -hmm. to be able to congregate Um, and meet other people freely we've had to give up some of those freedoms and I think most of us have been very willing to do that um, because we understand the science we understand that the experts say this will save people's lives however 
there does need to be a scrutiny to make sure that that those um, those powers are not they're not overreached, and also that those powers are the absolute um, the absolute maximum power that is necessary, so that we don't overstep, that we don't introduce positions that are unnecessary. And it's a, it's a it's a difficult balance. I think the government generally has done quite well, but it's things like that. It's also the fact that we've effectively given the treasurer a $24 billion blank check uh, to provide stimulus, to, you know, certainly pay for a lot of the things that state governments are paying for uh, to, to ease the burden of, of COVID. For the most part, I think these are very good initiatives but without having that scrutiny and that oversight, it's sometimes it's probably hard to pick up what's happening between the lines. It's hard to pick up probably some of the initiatives that don't necessarily make the, make the daily news. Uh, sure. However, I think by and large, the government has done quite well and we will, um, through the parliament, we will be able to have a, a degree of scrutiny into these um, measures that the government uh, and particularly the treasurer, treasurer will be taking. Wonderful. And I suppose another question I had was um, with establishing an oversight body, do you think there was a specific, was there a specific call to action of like, we need an oversight body or was it more kind of out of the interest of protecting de democratic process? I know there's been a lot of controversy over under the crisis or during the crisis um the government victorian government passing through like lifting its ban on you know oil gas exploration off of you know um off of victoria so there have been some kind of what's been called sneaky pieces of legislative that have been snuck through was this was this um call to action out of like issues like that or was it more just democratic concern no, I think it was. It's a bit of both. So certainly, being able to um, being able to have access to ministers when they make announcements, to 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 find out and to certainly um, investigate why those decisions are made, why those decisions are made now, um, and and for what purpose. So a, a scrutiny committee is able to do that. We've got the parliamentary accounts and estimates committee has has been given part, a lot of this task and and that committee does have great powers in compelling witnesses to appear before it so it can compel uh, ministers uh, depart, government department heads to do that so some of that scrutiny will start to take place via that committee but of course that committee is chaired by the by the government so you know it it just it just would have been better if that committee was seen to be more independent from the government. But I agree, you know, some of the decisions that are made, I think it's important for our community and for our, our state to understand why they're made and to ensure that the greatest levels of transparency um, are available to us. Uh, and as you quite rightly use the um, the uh, the onshore gas exploration is 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 a good example of of that. Uh, I think also, you know, looking at at how police powers are used and whether they whether police have overstepped mm -hmm. those powers. Uh, we're you know we're 
our, our justice system is is operating at a, at a greatly reduced um, in a greatly reduced way. So ensuring that those that that need justice are having access to it. So you know whether that's just a, no longer having jury trials, but also looking at some of the the trials that are being postponed that are supposed to be heard in the children's court. So there's lots of areas that we would have liked to have had a very current and to the minute scrutiny of. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have that to, best practice hasn't been put in place. However, you know, we've got, as I say, Parliamentary Accounts and Estimates Committee, but also Parliament is going to be sitting. So that does allow a, a good level of scrutiny to, to be um, implemented. And I wanted to ask this just out of like personal interest, because often yeah. government is made inaccessible to the public. I know we have, you know, government websites and the Hansard and stuff like that, but um, after spending my own time crawling around <laughs> those sites, it can sometimes be hard to access what's going on. Um, from just your perspective, what will state government look like over the coming months? What do we expect um, people within government to be doing and how might it affect the agendas of state parliament? I mean, you've alluded to some things, but is, what, what, what's the process going to be like? Look, I think it's a really good question. And I, I, I certainly feel that we are not going to get back to where we were, you know, in, in the, and in the way that governments operated anytime soon. Uh, we're still going to see significant, uh, a significant impact from COVID, uh, whether that's continued social distancing, um, uh, but probably it's what, how do we come out of this? And I think that's probably the, the, the well, the multi-billion dollar question. So governments will be really considering how they do that. I also hope governments will be considering what they've done over the last few months, the effect that, that those actions have had um, and whether some of them have actually created very positive uh, results. So, for example, I think homelessness is a, is a wonderful example where we have been, we've had this extraordinary opportunity due to the fact that we have no tourists and we have um, an empty accommodation industry, we have been able to house people who couldn't have been housed um, in January this year. So we've been able to house at literally thousands of people over the past two months. So I see the departments continuing to do that because we're not going to see tourists at, at previous pre-COVID mm. numbers in Victoria anytime soon. So that's an, that's an opportunity. Once we look at, and I've been looking at gambling, so we know that those people with real severe problem gambling um, have been saved in some ways by the fact that the venue, the gambling venues have been shut. Now, how do we continue to assist those people? Now, I would say that when we start throwing money, and, and I, I say that in a good way, but when we start providing stimulus packages for our hospitality and entertainment um, and arts community, maybe we do that with the incentives to reduce the number of poker machines in our community, to reduce the harm of poker machine gambling. 
Uh, so I'm hoping that governments will be looking at what they've done during this time and how they can improve. But going forward, governments will be looking at how we can get our community back in work, back in school, um, mm. etc. And but I do think that I and I do hope that they look at the opportunities that this kind of um, that this stop has provided us with. It's a lot to think about, especially with, mm-hmm. I suppose, it, it's always a really interesting, sorry, yeah. thought, but it's always a really interesting point with like um, issues, complex issues such as like gambling addiction or homelessness, especially within our society and looking at how at the moment we're very much at a crisis management stage and crisis policy where we have to move back to preventative. So it's interesting to think of the challenges you've, or the opportunities you've yeah. mentioned, you know, as, as like, great insights or, or temporary fixes, but also that hope that post the crisis, we will start to see actual long-term investment into, right. you know, cause it, it, especially with the P housing people in, you know, in, in hotels, it's been mm. fantastic in the temporary, but the, you've also had a lot of people come out and call, you know, for, you know, why hasn't the support been around a public housing increase in Victoria? So I suppose it's, as you, as you mentioned, it's how you capitalize on those, on those opportunities, I suppose, as you frame Exactly. And I think it is capitalising on opportunities. And, you know, I would, I would throw another one in there is mm. the way that we have all been working. So those of us that have been fortunate enough to hold down a job during this time, mm. um, we've been, you know, using technology in ways that we probably never thought possible uh, prior to this. Uh, I think employers have realised that employees can work in flexible arrangements that um, that face-to-face that sitting at a desk from nine to five is not necessary for productivity. Uh, we look at the trams, the trains, our, our, our roads and look at the lack of congestion that mm-hmm. exists today because people are working differently. So imagine if we took that forward, imagine if we said that people could work more flexibly that kids, that kids, you know, that, that, that morning rush getting kids off to school was not such a stressful situation because you didn't have to start work at nine o'clock, meaning you had to be in the car by 7.30 or at the train station by seven. Mm. Um, imagine and, you know, if, if tw- just 20, 10, if just 10 or 15% of us didn't go to work first thing in the morning, um, we would almost everyone would have a seat on the train. <laughs> almost congestion on our roads would change. Um, through the, the better management, and I think what COVID has taught us is that we can manage things differently. We can work differently, but we can still be productive and effective. Well, thank you so much, Fiona, for coming on and talking to us more about that. Um, it's definitely interesting. It's, it's such an insight interstate government process as i said you usually don't get so thank you so much for today no thank you it's been really great and that was fiona Patton talking about what our current state government looks like during the crisis and potential for reflective oversights of emergency powers and stuff to come out of the crisis apparently parliament will be sitting back in june and i just wanted to make a note on the current uh victorian government's response by being people who are doing it tough on the streets into temporary accommodation in hotels Whilst Fiona Patton did reference this as 
a current strategy or opportunity that the Victorian government has seen, I just want to reference and acknowledge the fact that obviously a proper solution or a fair solution for these people would have been public house, investment in public housing 20 to 30 years ago. And on top of that, a lack of discrimination and criminalization of people who are in marginalized groups or potentially doing it tough. Uh, I've raised this point because it's an important point to me. It's an important point to 3CR community and the wider community at whole. And I think we can't really give a cookie to haphazard solutions when there are so much better proactive decisions out there. So uh, with that in mind, next week I'll be hopefully getting a story which looks at this this construction boom post-COVID-19 and uh, one researcher who has been suggesting that we really need to put all construction into prioritising public housing and social housing for this very reason to meet this very need. So with that in mind, we'll continue this story. I mean, we had the homelessness inquiry story last week and I, this is something that I'd like to keep going. So... For now, though, we're going to jump to a song and then we'll be back to wrap up the show. Why don't you just let go? Quiet down your ego Don't complain about finance I know your daddy weren't a real man Go ahead and live your dreams To me you're stronger than a whole team I know you can't relax And you don't want me to know that I see you work real You wanna help your friends But trust me baby You don't owe them Don't take on people's problems I wanna see you smile Even when you think I'm angry It's true it might take a while But it's between you and me Check my texts Don't you worry about my ex I might be on his mind But I never reply Remember on the weekend I said I'll make some changes And you said to do the same thing And I don't wanna fight my king I heard you when you was weak You caught me on my knees Don't pressure me for some kids And I won't pressure you for marriage I know it's never the right time, but we gotta do things on our time. Sometimes I still doubt myself, but at least now I love myself. And I am quite emotional, that's why you can't get close at all. So I start to push away the ones that love me, cause I'm scared that they might walk away. I'm not perfect. So I try every day and I grow a little bit Read a little more so I can educate my kids Eat from my soul and cleanse my spirit Pray cause I'm ready for the bloom of the city Since serenity is all that I need
concludes our show just a reminder of what we had on rob had a fantastic interview with dr nina lansbury talking about the impact of covid19 on remote indigenous communities and we just had fiona Patton finishing off with an insight into how state government is operating during the crisis all links and songs will be included in the rundown so definitely get on our 3cr wednesday page and check us out apart from that stick around for stick together which is up next and thanks to earth matters from before have a great wednesday folks